You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to another episode of Distilling Theology, where we take the sweet mash of Reformed theology and distill it down into a high-proof, concentrated elixir that once consumed and considered ought to intoxicate you with a doxological love for our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Eric, your assistant to the host. I'm joined by the man whose voice is as deep as his wisdom, who shall henceforth be known as Blake the Bavinkian Baritone. Blake, give the people what they want to hear. Thank you for listening to Distilling Theology. <laughs> this is the podcast where you can hear the name Wilhelmus Abrakel, spoken probably once an episode. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that, that was beautiful. Thank you. Well, we are also joined by the bearded bear himself, who always is packing heat, whether theological or otherwise. Justin, the big bad Baptist bear. How are you, sir? I have never <laughs> felt so <laughs> cherished in my life. I am... Uh, pleased as a black bear to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And we are joined by our esteemed guest this evening, and he is a preeminent scholar, a prince among mere men, a friend of Frodo and fellow traveler to Mordor. He is a pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California, and you may know him from such works as God Without Passions, a primer, a a primer, a primer, Sam, how do you say that? Primer. Primer, that's how I say it too, then. We should talk later about your favorite color, too. Um, also, God Without Passions, a reader. I think I said that one correctly. From Shadows to Substance, The Federal Theology of the English Particular Baptist, and his latest book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, we are pleased to have with us Dr. Samuel Samwise Renahan. Thank you, and Eric. the crowd Thank you, goes Justin. wild. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> it's wonderful. a pleasure, oh my pleasure to be with you. <laughs> oh, Happy to was... have you, sir. I am a friend of Frodo. <laughs> well, I, I know you know have, at least one dwarf. Right over there is Minas Tirith and the Argonath, uh, you know, over there. Yes. So. <laughs> this is the way. Amazing. Yeah, that was beautiful, Eric. Thank you for that. That's, wow. I'm never going to really, be able to you, top you that. You weren't lying. You really put effort into that. I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased. That was... <laughs> Yeah, it was wonderful. So obviously we are joined by some very special guests. It's uh, it's always a good day when we can have someone on our show who's not just uh, like us. us. Yeah, uh, you know, just your two your two two guys sipping theology. Now we're stepping into the territory of Reformed Forum and actually inviting people on who know what they're talking about. So um, it's great to have you here, Sam. Thanks for making some time with us. Um, now I do have to ask: do you do you know any dad jokes? You can't put them on the spot like that. I know it's. I mean, it's unfair. For all true dads, they just they kind of they come to them. Don't exactly. They? Yeah, that's that was the actually a test question, so that was sage correct. wisdom right there. That was yeah. that was the proper uh, theology of dad jokes. Uh, I can tell you a Lord of the Rings joke. Oh, always. Let's hear it. Well, my brother was telling me the other day. He said, "You know, the fact that the uruk in 
Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings say it looks like meat's back on the menu means that they clearly know what restaurants are. <laughs> but when you go to a restaurant in Mordor, you always need reservations because one does not simply oh, walk in. Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Totally it's not agree. the funniest joke, but the funniest part to me was like, wait, yeah, this means they do know what a menu is. <laughs> there's a, there's there's, civilized yeah. people. You're thinking about the Urkai just sitting there waiting for their, I don't know, disgusting food or whatever <laughs> this is beautiful oh Sorry. my word no that oh was that was wonderful uh i'm actually gonna segue that other thing later because we have a spirit in front of us so i'll come back mm. to this later uh and eric as our resident distiller and oh boy. sort of you know expert in all things distilled can you tell us a little bit about what we're drinking tonight no yeah, pressure we, well we are drinking johnny walker's double black and <gasps> that was uh, choice of Sam Renahan's, right? That that's a whiskey that you keep on hand, Sam. Is that what you said? Is my it personal is. favorite whiskey oh. within right. my budget. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I, I hear that. It's a good um, uh, theological so, distinction there. So Johnny Walker Double Black is bottled at forty percent ABV, uh, and the mash bill. It's a little hard to distinguish exactly what it is. It's not a single malt. Um, uh, you know, single malt coming from one single distillery, all f- uh, made from a malted barley mash. Uh, but the Johnny, uh, the <laughs> I can't talk already. The double black um, seems to be similar to their black label, which is a blend of 40 different scotches from all over Scotland. However, the double black has more whiskeys in it from the West Coast and islands of Scotland, which is going to give it a slightly more smoky characteristic than the standard black label. And it seems that the some of the casks have been recharred with a heavier char and that some of them may have even been uh, sherry finished scotches that were added to the blend as this has a slightly darker color, um, slightly more, as we'll get into with the tasting notes, um, sherry like notes uh, in the blend. But it also probably has a little bit younger whiskey in it than the 12 years. The 12 year has a a or sorry, the, the black label has a 12 year age statement, whereas the double black does not have an age statement. So they're probably putting some younger whiskeys in there uh, to give it a little bit more vibrancy and um, probably a lot of those sherry finished scotches would be my guess, but it's a little hard to find information about their, their blend online. Obviously they're going to keep that close to the chest. Sure. Well, what are we getting on the nose gentlemen? What do yeah. we smell on this? I think this is actually our first um, blended scotch whiskey we've tried on the show. I think. Do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> I'll so tell you why I like it, but I won't have all the terms. Oh, that's <laughs> no. all right. If I was going to drink, if I were going to drink a single malt scotch, I like Lagavulin and Lafroig. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you know the Smoky Peaty single malts. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unless I've had a really big meal, those ones punch me a little too hard, just taste wise. And so for me, I feel like the Johnny Walker Double Black gets a little, a little bit smoother drinking experience of a blended whiskey, but still has that smoky flavor of a Lagavulin or a Laphroaig. And so to me, it's like the best of both worlds. It's not as heavy as a, as those single malts. I know there's other single malts that aren't quite that intense, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that that's why I like it. It's got the smokiness, but also the smoothness and a little bit of that sweetness of a, of a blend. So it's a gentle it's kick to the mouth. It's not, yeah. you know, too much. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah. No, that's a great reason. And, and it definitely, the smokiness from those Isla scotches and, and West coast scotches that they're adding to the blend, it definitely shines through, but it's not overpowering at all. It, yeah. it reminds me of, um, something like a Highland park 
that has noticeable amount of peat in it, okay, but sure. it's not a, a peat bomb or anything like that. Um, you, mm-hmm. you notice a lot of other fruit notes in there. For me, um, yeah. I get some citrus that comes across mm-hmm. almost as like a blood orange on the nose. And then that you get that salty sea breeze or sea spray is definitely a saltiness that's reminiscent of those. Getting like a unique mix of it's it's kind of a cool unique mix of like vanilla, uh, citrus, and like barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, yeah. It's like a really cool because uh, I'm I'm getting the same sort of excitement that I get when I'm about to have uh, something smoky like a Lagavulin, where I'm like I'm ready to like consume like a nice meaty meal, but at mm-hmm. the same time it's also still like refreshing and and kind of bright. Yeah, there's a there's a savory aspect to the nose on this, and yeah. I really like the balance to this whiskey. It's got it's got a nice balance between that savory, the salt, the smoke, and then some sweet notes like the citrus. You were saying vanilla. I also get some almond on the nose. Okay. Um, yeah. You said barbecue sauce. You take that back. <laughs> just kidding. You know, Justin's been known to add barbecue sauce to his whiskey. It's, just, it's ironic, just a devil, but do you? I do not like Johnny Walker Black Label. Like, really? I'll, I'll choose a, almost anything other than that. But mm. I love the double black, so go figure. Mm. You like that, that little bit of extra smoke and Well, I found that. I, I find the Black Label's fine, like if, I, if I'll put it on ice or in a mixed drink. Um, but for me, I, like what I've, I've actually never had the double black. It's been on my list of things to try. And... I've just never gotten around to trying it. So this is actually awesome because I've had the green label, which I really like. I had their limited release um, black label director's cut that they did for um, for the Blade Runner film a couple of years ago, which mm-hmm. is very good. But that's also mm-hmm. an expensive bottle. So I was very excited when we decided to taste this because it's been on my to taste list for a while. So the, the last Johnny that I had was the blue label. Actually, my mm. buddy got a bottle of it for his wedding and he shared some. And um, that was pretty good. I mean, that's a very expensive bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he poured, he just opened it up. He's like, here, have some, you know, I was really excited about mm-hmm. that. So it'll be a good comparison. <laughs> yeah. The blue is this so is, smooth. Yeah. yeah this is a lot, smooth. a lot smokier. <laughs> I, I think more balanced than the blue, the blue. Mm-hmm. I know that's not what we're talking about tonight, but it's, it's got more of that. Like it's like honey nut Cheerios. It's just like a sweet, yeah. subtle honey, yeah. uh, bready note to it. Like, um, mm-hmm. honey it's on, a to- on a toasted to bread. It's very malty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, it's kind of a one trick pony. Like, it's very nice, very soft whiskey, mm-hmm. um, but I don't find that it's overly balanced or com- complex, surprisingly. Yeah. For, yeah. for the price, it's a great whiskey. For the price, wrong, but I, I, I like smoke in my scotch, personally, and yeah. and so I like that this has a little bit more balance to it. Um, I could just be saying that, justifying in my head that it's, you know, like a third the price or, or less than a third <laughs> the price. <laughs> but, no, it's good. I, yeah. there, there's something legitimate about that. It's like, um, you know, when you buy... The wonderful works of God versus the whole four volume dogmatics. Like, do you really need the full four volume dogmatics? Sometimes depends on who you are, you know. Okay, or so sometimes bo- you do both. We have a Bob Inc. reference. Now we just gotta wait on the uh, a Brockle one. Yeah. I don't know. Is there a consolidation of the Christian's Reasonable Service that I'm unaware of? I don't know. Anyways, well, all right. So, what are we getting on the taste? Let's find let's, out. Let's Cheers, find out. gentlemen. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> there's a so I, I get the smoke kind of towards the back mm-hmm. but in it's the very front creamy. it is a very creamy mouthfeel and I get this like that vanilla and honey kind of in the front and almost like raisins yeah. or dates or something of that nature down through the middle but that's kind of just the initial 
and that's and yeah i agree and that's why i think there's some more sherry influenced scotch mm-hmm. in this blend than their standard black label because those that raisin note yeah. um that's i mean that's a telltale note that you're going to get in a lot of sherry finished scotches and i agree i'm getting some of that raisin honey on the front end um i love the saltiness it's it's, it's, it's almost like a salted yeah. butter mm-hmm. with the creaminess yeah. it's like a salted butter mixed with like some nice wood smoke um, barbecue sauce and barbecue sauce. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. At this point, there's nothing that will surprise me that gets said. Yeah. Thir- I'm, waiting 30- for, I'm waiting for the day that we have a, a scotch that's like, mm, this tastes like gym socks, you know? Yeah. Well, we, we probably should do ourselves a favor and taste a few things that are less nice. <laughs> Okay. It's like, it's like, no, it's Dude, like, why would you, you say such a thing? Well, here's what I'm saying though, because everything we taste, we're like, this is so good. And I think people aren't actually going to believe that we know what we're talking, like that we have any sense of what we're doing. Cause it's just so like next episode, so- we're going to sip, uh, Captain Morgan. <laughs> so, and we're going to talk about, um, you know, Todd White and, uh, Benny oh theology. <laughs> That'll be our, you know, cause, cause you got to juxtapose the bad so that you can, you know, you can have a better grip on what's right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've dumped bottles of whiskey down the drain before I've had yep, yeah. some really bad bottles. Uh, I've that, done the drain pour. that, what the heck was that stuff? It's like the, the peanut butter, butterball, mm, mm-hmm. uh, screwball, screwball. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, dude. That was, that was the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. It was so terrible. <laughs> I dumped out the whole thing, man. It was so, so my, I, I think, you know, not to rush. I love enjoying the whiskey with you guys, but yes. man, we got Sam here and I want to get into some covenant theology with him. It. I'm into but it, but first I want to give my, my last final notes on this. Oh. This is my, this is my overview or my summary of double black. I like it. I love the balance to it. Like I said, it reminds me of some like Highland park where you get a little bit of just a little bit of peat smoke, but not too much. Not like that kick in the mouth that Sam was talking about with a little Freud. But the one thing I wish it, it, it was just a slightly higher ABV. 40% is a little low for my taste. And I think you would get a little bit more viscosity and mm-hmm. a lengthier finish if they had a slightly higher ABV. Somewhere in the 45 to 50% range would be my preference for it. But as far as the flavors that are there, it's a, it's a very nice scotch, especially for the price. Well so, said. Let me ask you a question. I'm not very adventurous. If I find something I like, I'll just settle. So between this and Lafroig and Lagavulin, do you have any recommendations in this vein for someone with, with tastes like mine? Something that, that you don't want, something that's not quite as intense or somewhere between the two or what do you? Anything just in that, in that world that's reasonably priced. Do you like something a little doesn't bit doesn't have smoky? to be cheap, but just, you know, sure. reasonable. Um, you know, I, I've already mentioned Highland Park. I would say the Highland Park 12 year um, is a good go-to. Um, it's a, that's going to be a single malt. Um, so it's gonna be a little different than the blend just from one single distillery, but it's similar in the sense that the, the smoke isn't overwhelming. Um, yeah. it's, it's more balanced. Uh, Ooh, another one, another great one. It's on the, the Northern Northwestern coast, I believe is Oban. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oban 14 year, I want to say that's going to be around <laughs> 60 to $70 a bottle, depending on what it's at, like out in your area. So that's gonna be a little more expensive. And they have a but, non-stated one called Little Bay that's sometimes oh, right. cheaper, sometimes more expensive. I, I can never tell how they price it. And I was going to say Ardbeg 10 is that's, like one of oh, my yeah. go-tos. That's one of my go-tos. But if, if you're looking for someone that's to have when you're not ready for a Lagavulin or a Lefroig, Ardbeg to me is actually more intense than either of those. To mm-hmm. me, I, I think Ardbeg is the, the most offensive of all the Isla 
distilleries in a good way, <laughs> in a good way, kind of yeah. offensive. You know, if you want to, you know, drink right. tar, um, I love it. It's, it's like reading rubber. sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's offensive, but it's good yeah. for you. Just oh yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Perfect analogy that Ardbeg is the sinners in the hands of an angry God distillery equivalent in Iowa. Yeah, that's yeah. So, and that's well, about a $40 bottle. So that's, let's, um, bad. let's open up uh, with some prayer yeah. from the Valley vision. Uh, and then we'll get right into some of these questions that, uh, our number one fanboy has laid out for us. Oh, I'm gosh. super excited. Um, guys, if you have the Valley of Vision, which again, I'm going to keep recommending it every episode. Uh, if you don't have it, uh, I'm disappointed in you, uh, but I love you. And, disappointed dad look. Uh, <laughs> you can't see it unless you're on Patreon, but it's here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to pay um, to get Justin's disappointed dad look. It's <laughs> a good one. Uh, but if you have it, open up to page 80. Um, I'm just moving on right from uh, right from... Just a couple pages from where we were the other night. Um, Reconciliation, it's called. Mm. Lord God Almighty, thou art beforehand with men, for thou hast reconciled thyself to the world through the cross, and dost beseech beseech men to accept reconciliation. It is my responsibility to grasp thy overtures of grace, for if thou, the offended part, act first with the word of appeasement, I need not call and question my willingness to save, but must deplore my own foolish maliciousness. If I do not come to thee as one who seeks thy favor, I live in contempt, anger, malice, self-sufficiency, and thou dost call it enmity. Thou hast taught me the necessity of a mediator, a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all of my heart. As king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to take away my sin and death, and this by faith and thy beloved Son, who teaches me not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try to rule and conquer sin, but to cleave to the one who will do all for me. Thou hast made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance, as a mourning of the sin which Christ by grace has removed. Continue, O God, to teach me, that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as an unspotted evidence of thy love to me. Help me to make use of his work of salvation as ground of peace, and of thy favor too, and acceptance of me, the sinner, so that I may live always near the cross. Hmm. Amen. 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 Now, I did have one other, as we're jumping into this, um, I don't think we filled you in all, on all this, but a couple of weeks ago, Justin and Eric did an episode uh, where Justin renounced and left the camp of theonomy, uh, largely because of his embrace of 1689 covenant federal theology. So I am very happy about that. <laughs> and many of our listeners were, and it was great to great to listen to that. So we had at least two sad reacts. That's <laughs> as as it as as it does on the internet. But anyways, I thought that was some interesting backdrop there. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Sam, thank, thanks for coming on, man. You are the person to talk to about covenant theology in general, I think, uh, but specifically about Baptist covenant theology as well. Um, and, uh, I think this is going to be a good time for anybody listening, fun time for us. Um, I, I want to jump in with you kind of, you know, at, at, at the novice level, you know, anybody who's not super familiar with what covenant theology is might be new to the reformed faith. Um, let's start with, you know, how would you define a covenant? The easiest concept to help 
a person understand a covenant is commitment. Covenants are based on commitments between two parties. But what makes it a covenant is that these commitments are protected by guarantees. And those guarantees are usually threats of some kind. I, I will or else, and you will or else. There's I will, you will commitments. And there are some kind of threats, sometimes called sanctions, that protect and ensure that the parties will do the things that they have committed to do. So you can just say that a covenant is a commitment guaranteed by threats, or when we're talking about biblical covenant theology, sometimes we say a commitment with divine sanctions. God determines what the threats will be. So a commitment with guaranteed by threats or a commitment with divine sanctions. In the, the literature I read, whether it's Baptist or Paedo-Baptist, there's, there's pretty um, common agreement on that basic mm-hmm. definition. You know, people add nuances and of course there's more that could be said, but that's, that's pretty universally uh, understood to be a good working definition of a covenant. Yeah. And, and the unity of that definition, as you were saying, I mean, there's so much that we have in common um, on regardless of what side you fall on or how you understand covenant theology, there's so much more that we have an agreement probably than disagreement. Mm-hmm. And you know, with that in mind, like broadly speaking, what it, what exactly is covenant theology then with that definition of covenant? You know, I've, you've talked about law versus gospel in your books, continuity versus discontinuity. How does that uh, come into play with covenant theology and, and kind of where we all would agree? Covenant theology, I mean, in basic terms, is the study of the covenants that God made with man that are revealed to us in the scriptures. But when you when you study those covenants, there's certain things that stand out and, and run throughout them, such as, as you mentioned, the law runs throughout all the covenants and the gospel runs through the covenants after, of course, the fall. And so covenant theology is very much concerned with the law and the gospel running continuously throughout redemptive history and how God's plans unfold in a unified way from beginning to end uh, to bring about his purposes and to, to save the elect. So covenant theology studies those covenants, not, oh, there was a covenant over there and there was another covenant over there, but it's one a unified plan that God is working out and unfolding throughout history. Covenant theology studies that. Awesome. And, you know, in your new book, which everybody definitely needs to get, um, it's, it's, what? I said, I'm looking at you, Blake. Yeah. Blake, you need to get it specifically. (laughs) No, it's, it's just such an awesome, um, scholarly yet at the same time, such a readable, it, it, you've put so much work in this. I can tell, um, you know, all the study that's gone into this and you, you spend the first couple chapters of the book before you even dive into the specific covenants laying out kind of our hermeneutic, um, how we should be looking at certain things to help us understand these covenants. And one of those things you lay out is typology, um, in one of those early chapters. And so what, what exactly is typology and and what do we need to know about it? How does it help shape our understanding of the covenants? Typology, I believe, is one of the most important things to have a decent grasp of if you want to study covenant theology. If you want to study it or do it um, without a good understanding of typology, I believe that you're lacking one of the most important tools. So, again, we also agree with Pato Baptist Brothers about the basic definition of typology. I, I quote just word for word Greg Beale's definition. Um, and so to try to sum that up, typology is the study of divinely ordained analogy 
and escalation in Revelation. So analogy and escalation means that there's, it's the study of persons and events and institutions and more, as Beale says, other things. <laughs> These things which, which prefigured and, in other words, revealed Christ before he came, before his incarnation. And these persons, these events, these institutions were analogous to features of Christ and his covenant and his kingdom. But we also see an escalation as we move from those pre-incarnation features to the post-incarnation features. So typology is looking at those relationships of analogy and escalation and, and we always put in there divinely ordained because typology is not the things that we decide are types, even though we may need to use um, hermeneutical tools to identify them. But ultimately, a type is a type because God made it to be a, a type. And so we, we look at persons, events, and institutions. We see something to which they are analogous. And also we find escalation uh, moving from the one to the other. And this helps us to, typology helps us to see the unity of redemptive history, that what comes later is not completely and utterly new. It's not never been known before, never been made known before. Rather, God had already made certain things known to a certain extent uh, through typology. And so typology helps us see Christ in the Old Testament. It helps us mm -hmm. see that thread running throughout Israel's history and even before Israel. Uh, and it helps us see that this was the plan all along. What God brought to bear, what God brought to fruition in Christ and in the church, is not a detour, but it's the mm -hmm. destination of redemptive history. It's not a, oh, this didn't work out. Let's do something else. It, it was always the plan. And typology, again, is pushing you that way the whole time if you're sensitive to it, if you're paying attention to it. Um, maybe we'll come back to this a little bit later. In fact, I I know we will. But ty typology <laughs> also helps us to be rescued from certain dilemmas or what I believe are dilemmas in the study of covenant theology. And so we'll, we'll come back to this, yeah. I think, but for example, it, John Owen talks about how old Testament saints were saved under the old covenant, but not by the old mm -hmm. covenant. And typology is really the reason why he can do that. He can say the animal sacrifices were not Christ's sacrifice, but they prefigured Christ's uh -huh. sacrifice. And so they're saved under the old covenant because Christ is being revealed there, but they're not saved by the old covenant because Christ is not animal blood. You know, the blood of goats and bulls is not the blood of Christ. So typology uh -huh. helps us to say, okay, Christ is here, but that doesn't make everything where his revelation appears identical to him. Uh -huh. um, typology is, gives us a balanced understanding of the progress of redemptive history, both unity and, and continuity. If we don't have typology, then we could divest the, the animal sacrifices of meaning and say, well, they were just animal sacrifices. They purified mm -hmm. the flesh. Typology says, no, but they were also these pictures of Christ. Uh, yeah. And if you, if you take typology the other way, the wrong way, you'd say these animal sacrifices were Christ, but in a pre-Christ form. And we'd say, mm -hmm. well, that doesn't fit either because they did have a function <laughs> in their own way. They did purify the flesh. Yeah, which Christ flattening them out. Yeah, flat, mm -hmm. flattens them out. So you could sort of empty them out uh, on the one end. You could flatten them out on the other end. And, and biblical typology, I believe, gives us a balanced um, view of redemptive history where Christ runs throughout it. But that doesn't mean that everything is the same as, as Christ, et cetera. So. Right. So it's an important part of progressive revelation, you would say, that, that God is 
progressively revealing his purposes for redemption, his you know redemptive historical plan, and types, or also called shadows, are, are one of the ways that he does that. And I've heard you talk before about type versus anti-type, and if you could just kind of help define the difference there and what they kind of point to, whether it's one thing or two things, I think that'd be really helpful too to distinguish type versus anti-type. Yeah. Yeah, a type. Let's let's just give some examples, so it's not just theory. Uh, a type mm-hmm. would be something like the manna in the wilderness, uh, which is real food, uh, mm-hmm. feeding real people, and yet Jesus calls himself the true manna. And so, was the first manna false? You'd say no, it wasn't false. There's just something greater and other than the original manna, and that is Christ. And and you can do mm-hmm. the same with the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent really healed people when they looked to it to believe God's promise that they would be healed. Mm -hmm. And yet the serpent lifted up in the wilderness points to Christ who is lifted up on our behalf, et cetera. I already mentioned the animal sacrifices. So a type is that original person, event, or institution, which has its own meaning and its own context and its own function and purpose. An anti-type is the thing that it's picture, the, the thing that it's shadowing, the thing that it's prefiguring, Anti is, is what comes later in this case. It's the, the thing that replaces it. Anti-type replaces the type, like an antichrist replaces Christ. So an anti-type uh, replaces the original type and comes in a fullness and perfection that was lacking because types have built-in defects and imperfections. Even David, is types are, can be positive and negative. David is a positive picture in many ways of what his faithful son will be like, the man who delights in the law of God, the man who p- keeps the worship of God pure, the man who is a shepherd to his people, etc. the good shepherd. And yet David obviously has so many things about him that are, are wrong and are weaknesses and, and because he's a sinner, his adultery, his, his overreaction to his son Absalom and the way that he handled that whole situation and more, we, we could go on. So, so types have this imperfection and, and defect, defection built into them. Antitypes come in a greater other fullness and finality um, as, as they usher in the thing that was being pointed at the whole time. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think um, before diving into some of the distinctiveness of Baptist covenant theology, I, I think if you could lay out, and I think you do a great job of it in your book, um, but give us kind of an overview, uh, you know, 30,000 foot view of the biblical covenants. Um, you know, you break it out as the kingdoms of creation, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Christ. And, um, I think just having for anybody who's new to this, at least kind of having the general layout of covenants would be really helpful. Yeah. When, when you deal with covenant theology this way, you're really just following a timeline. You're following a historical development. Um, and so we begin in the garden with, with Adam. God uh, plants a garden after having created the world, having, having created man, God places him in Eden. And God makes a covenant with Adam that we call the covenant of works, promising him uh, confirmation in righteousness, promising him eternal life uh, if he obeys God, if he's faithful to God and threatening him with, with death if he does not. And of course, Adam sins and breaks the covenant of works. And so corruption and condemnation come on him and all his, whom he represented, which is mankind. And so man being in sin now, corrupt and condemned, God makes a separate, uh, reveals a new way 
of reconciliation to escape this corruption and condemnation, promising that there will be offspring to Eve and that one of them will crush the head of the serpent. One of them will undo that enmity uh, and bring amity to man and God. And so we, we call that the covenant of grace. It's not works for man to perform uh, to confirm himself in righteousness or earn something, but rather it's grace as man puts out his empty hands and receives freely from God a gift of salvation and reconciliation. And it's grace because God, God is saying he will accomplish this through the, the triumphant seed of Eve. And it's not something that Adam and Eve must perform. They must simply believe that it will take place. They must believe that God will provide deliverance for them. And that, uh, that revelation of the covenant of grace moves forward and is developed throughout history. As we move on, we, we come to man multiplying and his sin multiplying, and God destroys the world and mankind with a flood and makes a covenant with Noah afterwards, promising not to destroy the world again by a flood, which preserves the world and gives it a stability so that the, the line of Eve can, can grow and the seed of Eve can come who will crush the serpent's head. And then we fast forward in time and God came to a particular person, Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham saying, you and your descendants will be inheritors of this land in Canaan. You will be multiplied and fruitful here. You have a blessed life here. And from your midst, one of your descendants, Abraham, is going to bless the nations. There will be a, a, a nation's blessing coming from your descendants in Canaan. And of course, we fast forward in history and the, Israel, the Hebrews, the offspring of Abraham, have not yet entered the promised land. They're in slavery in Egypt. God delivers them from Egypt through the Exodus, uh, through the parting of the Red Sea, and God makes a covenant with them and says, I'm going to bring you into the land now. It's time to enter the land promised to your fathers. If, if you're going to live there, and of course you are going to live there, here are my rules. Here are my laws and my statutes for you to live as my people in this kingdom uh, that I have given, to, that I swore to your father Abraham. And so God makes the Mosaic covenant with them. Uh, and he, he tells them, you must act in this way. You must live in this way. And if you don't, if you are unholy in my land, then you will be cursed and you will be vomited out and exiled from the land. And then eventually we come to the line of David after the, they've entered the land, they've settled in it, they've conquered it. Um, the tribes have received their allotted portions and God makes a covenant with, with David and gives him a dynastic kingship and promises him that one of his sons will have an everlasting kingdom and will sit on an everlasting throne, but also threatens the Davidic sons if they're unfaithful, again, with exile. They do not obey. And at, at that point, we see the Israelite kingdom and its covenants. We see the people of Abraham living in Canaan under the law of Moses with the, the king of David or the Davidic king as their head. And books of Kings and Chronicles, they specify righteous kings and wicked kings. Righteous kings bless the nation. Wicked kings curse the nation, or God curses the nation through them or because of them, uh, and also blesses the nation because and through them. So moving forward, the kings fail. <laughs> the people fail. They're exiled. But God is going to fulfill his promises to bring them back, a remnant of them. And God also begins to announce through prophets that that the faithful son of David will come and that God will establish through him a new covenant, a new covenant that will forgive their sins, a new covenant that will cause them to know the Lord that will not be like the old covenant. And so Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, uh, he came in our flesh 
and he died to inaugurate that new covenant which had been announced in Genesis 3, that covenant Mm. of grace, Mm -hmm. that means of eternal forgiveness, that means of perfecting the conscience, that means of everlasting redemption that the old covenant could not provide in itself. Mm. Uh, And so this new covenant establishes the kingdom of Christ and gathers all the nations. It's the blessing for the nations from the line of Abraham and David. And uh, we live in that covenant. We live in the new covenant of grace mm-hmm. um, in an outward way, in a fullness that the people before Christ did not necessarily enjoy, but with the same inward benefits, the same peace of conscience, the same justification by faith that Adam enjoyed, that Noah enjoyed, that Abraham enjoyed, and so many Old Testament believers enjoyed. And so we live in this new covenant of grace, waiting with down payments of our inheritance, but not yet experiencing the fullness of the new creation and the consummation of our bodies in the resurrection that Jesus has won for us in the new covenant. And the church is that sojourning uh, pilgrim people that are, that celebrate the covenant weekly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> actually, <laughs> my church doesn't, I'm sad about that, but mm. anyway, who, who celebrate the covenant <laughs> and, and remember the Lord's death and their, their right to heaven. And, um, so yeah, that's a quick yeah. overview of, of redemptive history and, and the covenants. And Wow, everybody, I hope you just, you could appreciate that. You just heard the entire Bible in like five minutes. <laughs> that was quite the overview. I was not expecting, I was not expecting that. Yes, take a drink, sir. Take a drink. You, you've earned it. You could say that Sam was distilling theology. Yeah. <laughs> oh, snap. Oh, Sam so just distilled some theology right down like that. No, that was beautiful. That was so good. Mm. Really and quick, you know, oh, Cato yeah. Baptist brothers, they tell the, uh, yeah. you understand these words, they tell the same story, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. Yeah. one, one plan of salvation and one means of salvation in all history. Amen. And we, we must, we should never lose sight of that unity with them. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, a- you know, amen. Blake's, Blake's on the show. So <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Amen to that. Yeah. And amen. <laughs> Sam, so in your book though, what you do, and and it's so cool, is you you take those covenants. So you basically went through the the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic, uh, or sorry, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant in Christ. And you you just laid all those out and how God progressively revealed those uh, through redemptive history. And you take those and you 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 kind of categorize them and say that they're parts of these different kingdoms that God has laid forth. You know, as you call them, the kingdom of creation, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Christ. And so, so how is it that you, you break that out? Why is it you put it that way? What, what does covenant have to do with kingdom? And why do you say that these are part of different kingdoms? When we, when we look at God's promises in these covenants, we find that they deal with specific groups of people in specific realms or places. And so when we look at the, the covenant of works or the Adamic covenant, and we compare it with the Noahic covenant, we see that all creation is in view in those covenants, that the realm that they have in view is the same creation, as well as the parties, the people, it's Adam and mankind, Noah and mankind, you and all flesh, these, these universal categories are used. And so we can see that God is governing through his covenants. He is ruling over these spaces uh, with his covenants saying, I will and you will uh, in these realms, in these, in these spaces. So that's when I talk about kingdom and covenant. It's saying that these covenants establish a space and then they rule over the people in that space. Mm. Well, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants have a, a subset 
a smaller group of people and a smaller space in view, God, through the Abrahamic covenant, sets out Canaan as a space and the offspring of Abraham, the circumcised, as the people who are have the right to fill that space. It belongs to them. And the Mosaic covenant is given to the same people in the same land, so also the Davidic covenant is given for kings to rule over the same people in the same land. And so those three covenants establish a kingdom, a space with a people, uh, and, and laws and blessings and curses to govern them uh, in that kingdom. And then uh, as Baptists, at least, or, or speaking for myself, I would argue that the new covenant of grace, founded in the covenant of redemption, that it establishes a separate space with a, with a special people also distinct from Israel where Christ's blood uh, and Christ's blood redeems a people, the elect. Mm-hmm. And the space that, that is given to them is, of course, the new creation, which we do not yet enter into. But the, the church collects us in one place right now. And so our inheritance is not Canaan, and our laws are not the, the laws of Moses, but our inheritance is heaven, or really the new creation, and Christ's, Christ's law rules us. Now, I'm, I'm not a New Covenant guy, but it is the moral law through Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's a separate kingdom. The kingdom of Israel and its covenants are, are distinct, not divided from, but distinct from the kingdom of Christ established and governed by the new covenant of grace. So those three kingdoms, covenant of, kingdom of creation with Adam and Noah, in kingdom of Israel with Abraham, Moses, and David, and kingdom of Christ with the covenant of redemption and the new covenant mm-hmm. help, help see both the historical progression and a, a somewhat systematized presentation uh, of understanding how those covenants relate and are also distinct from one another. Well, that actually kind of leads us into a question that I'm, I'm curious about is the, 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 the minority, I guess, tonight. Uh, how would you, <laughs> so how do Baptists, specifically those who hold to a 1689 Federalist view, um, understand covenants differently than those of a Presbyterian or a Westminster Federalist view? Um, and I guess, what's that look like? I'm trying to be descriptive. I'm trying to describe Westminster Covenant theology, not attack it. <laughs> um, I think it's preface. important to recognize that Westminster, thinking of the Westminster Confession, that Westminster Covenant theology is is a big slice of the Reformed pie, but it's not the whole Reformed pie in terms of covenant theology. For sure. So the way that we would distinguish 1689 federalism from, say, Westminster covenant theology would, would have differences from the way that we would distinguish 1689 federalism from um, non-Westminster reformed paedo-Baptist covenant theologies, which existed in the 16th and 17th centuries and still exist today. But I'm going to focus my comments on Westminster covenant theology, which sees uh, the covenants that I mentioned, Abraham, Moses, David, and the New Covenant, it, it sees those as actually just one covenant, one one single covenant. They are all the same covenant. And the difference that we see, the progress in redemptive history that, that they fully see, they describe that as a difference in administration, which means a difference in outward life, a difference in how things are arranged, the economy, the outward economy of the covenant. Um, And so obviously that's rather different from what I proposed a moment ago and what 1689 federalism holds where 
we see the Abrahamic Mosaic Davidic covenants as being distinct covenants, even amongst themselves, not, not just distinct from the covenant of grace itself. And Westminster Covenant Theology, one of the, that particular brand, one of the controlling ideas behind it is the idea that once the creature is fallen, God cannot relate to a fallen creature in covenant except through grace. How could God covenant with a fallen creature except it, it has to be grace? Uh, and so therefore, if there is only the covenant of works and grace, you know, Galatians 4, these are the two covenants, mm-hmm. speaking for them. Mm-hmm. If there are two covenants, the covenant of works and grace, if the covenant of works was broken and God makes a, a, a next covenant, another covenant, it must be grace. And so the, the covenant of works or a covenant of works could never be made with a fallen creature in, in this in this view. And so therefore, everything post-fall essentially is the covenant of grace with just outward changes uh, moving towards greater clarity uh, of personal believer's knowledge as well as an easier burden, not an easier burden of, of laws to keep. You know, the, the Christian church has a much lighter duty, ceremonial duty than the Jewish church in, in this view. Um, and so therefore the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants are the old covenant administration. They constitute how life was lived outwardly uh, in the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace. And the new covenant gives the new outward arrangement, a new economy, a new administration of the same singular covenant of grace. And so baptism replaces circumcision. Some Baptists dispute this amongst themselves, but for many, the Lord's Supper replaces Passover. And it's, it's said to be the same thing, just with new ordinances, new elements um, that are really just new versions of the same thing. And they see, therefore, unity of believers and their children in Genesis 17, uh, circumcision for the offspring and believers and their children in the new covenant administration in baptism with examples like household baptisms. You know, we all bring our presuppositions to that, but that's the direction that uh, Paedo-Baptists would take those views. And of course, passages like Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and for your children. I don't think the verse stops there, but most people do. So anyway, um, <laughs> boom. <laughs> so I just, I, I wanted to, to set that out in case people don't know what Westminster Covenant Theology is, or at least how I understand it in a sure. 30,000 foot view. It's important to note that some, that some slash many reformed scholars at the time of the Westminster Assembly did not agree with that model, um, and neither did the particular Baptists uh, or those who are often called today 1689 Federalists. And one of the reasons why 1689 Federalism would disagree with this model is that, at least from our perspective, okay, this is us looking at them. You know, you have to you have to hear it from that perspective. It, it seems to be shaped more by consequence and coherence, more by necessity and inference than by exegesis. In other words, it seems to be shaped more like more by, well, if this is true, then that must be true, as opposed to, but this is what the scriptures say about a, a particular thing. Now, do Pato Baptists ignore exegesis? Would you surprise them if you quote a verse to them? No, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. But at least from a 1689 federalism perspective, it seems that the direction in which the system, the way in which the system is constructed is far too heavily built on consequence and inference than exegesis. 
And, and of course, we'd say things like that because of the scriptural contrasts in Jeremiah 31 or Hebrews 1 through 10, which contrasts the old and new covenants in such a way that it amounts to far more than an outward change. The, the, the contrasts that are presented are far more than just new ordinances now with you know, 100% more bacon. Like 100% more bacon is not the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 1 through 10, but a, an administrative only change, which is all that Westminster acknowledges, an administrative only. Uh, really, that's all it, it can say is that we have greater clarity in Revelation. We have an easier do, ceremonial duty. Uh, and now the, it is preached to the nations instead of confined to one nation. And BLTs. So do, and, we, have new, do we have new bacon? <laughs> <laughs> we have the, more, the greater and perfect bacon, not made with hands. Can we put that on a t-shirt? Because that's beautiful. Made with, made with gloves, you know. Um, so to be more specific, 1689 Federalists, and I'm at least speaking for myself, um, we affirm with the Westminster model that there is one covenant of saving grace and that all the elect in all ages were saved by the grace of that one covenant. Like that's not in debate at all by anyone, but we would affirm that that covenant of saving grace is just the new covenant and only the new covenant. And that the pre-Christ covenants made it known sufficiently uh, and efficaciously. They, they painted the picture so that it could be known and believed and received and enjoyed, but they in and of themselves were different from uh, that covenant. They, didn't, they weren't just differing in outward appearance. They were actually something else, even though they were designed to relate to the new covenant. They're never divorced. They're never divided. They're never some unrelated thing, but they are, are distinct from it. So that would be a basic, those are assertions. Those aren't arguments. Sure. Um, that, that's just a general description of how I see Westminster and 1689 federalism relating, uh, at least systematically compared. Um, so Blake, we too distinguish. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I, and it's been a joy, um, in all my interactions with both Justin and Eric and now, uh, with you as well to not hear people say, well, he's called John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, or uh, <laughs> babies wet themselves because you know you gotta say that. In you've heard me say both those. Things. Yeah, but you say them in jest though, because because I, I have seen I have seen unfortunately uh, in the Reformed community online I've seen Baptists unironically say things like that, and it's very refreshing and and engaging um, mm -hmm. and challenging, frankly, to hear yeah. a really robust exegetical and thoughtful presentation of 1689 Federalism. So I'm grateful to all of you. Uh, uh, for, for that. And I, I feel like there's a shortage of that kind of in the podcast space. I feel like a lot of the yeah. guys that start uh, theology podcasts, whether they're lay people or, or pastorates or, um, you know, theologians, they tend to be on the, the Presbyterian and Dutch side of things. So it's nice to hear really robust uh, Baptist covenant theology. Well, Anyways. and let's let's all agree that social media is probably not the best place to be having these conversations oh, and debates, what? you know, because, you know, you've heard Baptists say ridiculous things in reformed yeah. Facebook groups and you've we've heard Presbyterians say similar reform. Oh, you mean like things, Baptists right? don't love their children? Like those yeah, like, you know, <laughs> so it's, you know, I, sure. I think, Sam, in, in the past, you've likened it to it's a difficult conversation to have because we have different method methodological um, frameworks there are different different ways of approaching the subject at times would you say that's correct 
Yeah, I, I've tried to, in my book, show our toolkit because yeah. I think a lot of Baptists don't know it. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> because since they don't know it, they, they wouldn't know how to engage a, a paedo-baptist brother with that tool set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm not, and I think that a paedo-baptist brother reading almost all Baptist covenant literature wouldn't see that tool set clearly laid out either. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we have different methodological um, pieces or, or tools, however you want to say it. But if we start with the same definition of covenant and the same definition of typology, it's kind of like, well, then where does it, where does it diverge? You know, where can we sure. find this common grammar and logic uh, and not just have rhetoric all the time? And so I, I've tried to say, well, here's our toolkit. Here's, here's our, well, not our, mine. Here's what I propose. Here's what I think is useful uh, in terms of methodology and whether or not it'll be effective or helpful, only time will tell. Um, you know, it, it may come to naught. Other people may improve on it. Um, we'll, we'll see. So, yes, I think that methodology needs to be discussed and pondered far more than just mm-hmm. lobbing the conclusions at one another all the time. And, yeah, and one of those well tools said. is, you know, how we understand typologies, what we you know, were talking about earlier. Is, is there a difference in how, um, you know, the Baptist and the Pado-Baptist might understand typology or, or or you know what like how differently do we see the the types and anti-types from one another yeah, yeah it, we have to be careful with this question because <clears throat> while i believe it's true that hato baptists often uh, while well, well, i think it's true that pedo baptists often misrepresent typology i don't think that they're doing it on purpose i don't think that they know they're making this choice instead of this other thing let let me be more specific so in 17th century literature uh the shift from old covenant to new covenant they acknowledge typology you know typology is not just some like non-pedo-baptist thing of course not Uh, but the way in which they describe this shift from old to new in terms of typology is again just as outward difference so the old covenant is a man dressing one way in his youth. You know, we, we dressed a certain way as kids. And then a man dresses a different way in his maturity. But it's the same man. He just grew up. Mm-hmm. He's just mm-hmm. wearing different things outwardly. And so they would say that the, the movement in covenants is typological. We see a, a less mature and a more mature. But they will only acknowledge an outward difference between those two things. And so I want to assert and I want to um, argue that based on biblical revelation, typology cannot be reduced to just an outward uh, escalation or, or just a sort of quantitative, well, it's just more of the same. No, it, it, it's something new and something greater. So yes, typology, uh, this, I don't know how fair this is, but I often think to myself, I just want them to think a little bit harder about their own typology. <laughs> you know, like, and, and you know what this, I mean by that. Like, yeah, we'll I, I feel like the premises too. are there. Yeah. But the conclusions just aren't reached. Um, yeah. This, you know, this is the most feisty and I, I've read your work, you know, I'm familiar with your stuff, Sam, and it's so great having you on here, but this is probably the most feisty I've seen you uh, with, you know, this conversation. Listen, Normally you avoid polemic theology does. <laughs> I didn't mean, I'm, I'm sorry if we're drawing this out of you. We'll just say it's Johnny that's, that's drawing this out of you. But um, no, I, I appreciate how careful you are trying to be. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the other side may not may disagree with what you're saying. Um, 
Blake might disagree with what you're saying, but I, I do get the impression that you're being very careful and trying to be very gracious yeah. and generous with your description. And I, I very much appreciate that. And that, that we need yeah. to have more of that. Um, also, I think we're trying to keep the episode not too long, not too much over an hour. And we're already, I think, pretty far in. I, I know we were wanting to talk a little bit about <laughs> the so historical. I know. I, well, there's a patron section, which is what yeah. I'm getting at. Like we were wanting to talk about maybe the historical development of Baptist covenant theology, which you've written a whole book. on. I mean, your, your dissertation, I believe, was was that book. Right. Um, but I think we should probably stick with this topic of the distinctiveness of Baptist covenant theology, not delve into the historical sure. aspect until maybe maybe the patron part. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's a little but, plug for everybody listening on the main show. Yeah. Uh, if you want to hear a little bit more in depth from this conversation, uh, you know where to find us. <laughs> yeah. But I think we have a few other questions that we'd like to address sure. before that. I'm just, you know, kind of trying to gauge time, which I'm horrible at doing. No, normally. you're doing great, man. We got about <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, good. 15 minutes or so. Yeah, we're um, fine. So, you know, in, in this debate, and the only reason I think, you know, it's so natural, at least for us here, uh, to jump to polemics and contrasting each other's views. One, we're all friends and we have different beliefs, so sure. we're always kind of bouncing them off one another. But I think it's a helpful teaching tool to say, OK, this is um, what they believe. This is what we believe. This is why both sides and then people can weigh it. So anyone who's kind of new to this, um, I think it can be helpful as long as it's done in a gracious manner, as as you're you know, so keen at doing, Sam. Um but one of the areas where there seems to be a lot of disagreement is the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant and how they relate to one another, um, how they relate to um, the, the redemptive historical plan of God. So, you know, why, why is there disagreement that arises there with the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and what are the differences? If, as I said earlier, if we look at the, the parties and the place and the promises and the precepts and the penalties, five piece, mm-hmm. of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, in my opinion, there's a, a complete overlap. Uh, who are we dealing with? We're dealing with Abraham's offspring in Canaan. And only Abraham's offspring in Canaan. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't apply to anybody else. Mosaic covenant, it's not the law for Babylon. It's the law for, for Israel and Canaan, for the offspring of Abraham. What kind of promises does God make to them? He promises them life in Canaan, multiplied descendants there, the birth of the one who will bless the nations. What kind of commands does, does he make or what kind of precepts does, does God give? In Genesis 17, you will circumcise your male offspring and all in your household on the eighth day. Anyone who, what kind of penalties, what kind of threats? Anyone who does not do this has broken my covenant and is cut off. That's not my language. That's the scripture's language. Has broken my covenant, is cut off from his people. In the Mosaic covenant, you get the same people, the same land, the same scope. And God, for people who are about to settle in that land, God says to them, as my people, you are to live in this way. And he gives them a a host of ceremonial duties in addition to the moral law. And God says, you must keep these duties. You must be clean and holy. Uh, And if you do not, you have broken my covenant. And here are these curses and penalties for you. Uh, You are cut off from your people. And so personally, again, please hear that this is coming from my opinion. I read that and I say, it seems it's very straightforward. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. They work together in the kingdom of Israel. Where I believe a lot of people get confused and where a lot of the conflict comes from is the way in which Paul speaks about Abraham and Moses in the New Testament. And 
some of it comes down to what you think Paul is trying to accomplish. Hmm. Why is he saying what he is saying? Because Paul strongly contrasts things about Abraham with Moses. Mm -hmm. So I have so closely overlapped Abraham and Moses. Why does Paul seem to, to bring them apart in certain ways? And I believe that Paul's purpose in these passages is really his same purpose in all of his epistles, except for maybe Philemon, where he's not really thinking about it. His purpose is to show that what the Christ did, what the Jewish Christ did, And Mm -hmm. what came out of it, what came from his life and death and resurrection was always the plan. This this Mm -hmm. is nothing Mm -hmm. new. Convincing Jews and Gentiles that what happened with the Jewish Christ is what always was planned. And so in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1, he talks about the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed. You know, this, this Christ blessing all the nations, it's been hidden for ages and now revealed in fullness so, so what does that tell me? It tells me that, that Paul, to prove to the Jews and to Gentiles who've listened to the Jews, to prove to them that the church and Christ is not a detour but a destination, he goes back mm-hmm. and says, you know, who's the most Jewish person ever? Abraham. Because to be a Jew is to be a child of Abraham. He says, look at what God did with Abraham. He promised him a descendant who would bless the nations. So if we see the Christ blessing the nations, don't be surprised. He promised, he, he justified Abraham freely by faith. So don't be surprised if the blessing for the nations is justification in Christ by faith. Uh, and all of this before circumcision. And mm-hmm. so he, he's showing the Jews, okay, you need to understand that what has happened is precisely what was foretold. But they need to realize it was foretold mysteriously. It was revealed in part. It was revealed in, uh, in pieces. It was revealed in a shadowy way. And so when people read Paul distinguishing uh, Abraham and Moses, I do not believe that he's distinguishing the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. He's pointing at the mystery of Christ revealed in the Abrahamic covenant, the mystery of Christ that, that he loves to explain. He says, this is what I do to make the, the word of God fully known. Uh, and we hear him going into synagogues for hours and days, uh, explaining this, arguing from it, from the law and the prophets. This is what was promised all along. And so I think that people take Paul's comments explaining the development of history and they create a system out of it. And I don't think Paul's trying to make systematic points uh, in, in the ways that many people think he is. And so they, they then, well, it varies. Okay. So Westminster Pado Baptists being committed to the idea that the Westminster, excuse me, that the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants are the covenant of grace. They, they have to answer the question, what contrast is Paul making between Abraham and Moses if it's the same covenant? And so they have a variety of answers to that. Then you have other groups like John Owen uh, or John Cameron who would say that the Abrahamic covenant, yes, is the covenant of grace, but the Mosaic covenant is not. And so they, they more clearly affirm the distinction between the two. Uh, and then Baptists like myself say neither the Abrahamic covenant nor the Mosaic covenant is the covenant of grace, even though the covenant of grace is there. It's revealed. It's part of the mystery that's unfolding and everything. Um, so here's what I think we need to do in terms of evaluating scripture. We need to say, okay, in the Old Testament, I think it's very clear that Abraham and Moses overlap pretty much 100% and say, is there a good scriptural reason later to not have that as our view? And I don't think that there is. I think that Paul pulls out the mystery of Christ from them, but doesn't, Mm -hmm. 
but doesn't turn them into the covenant of grace, doesn't turn them into into Christ. What do you mean when you say they overlap? What are you meaning? Uh, I'm meaning same people, same place, same promises, same precepts, same penalties. Um, You know, if you draw a circle of what the Abrahamic covenant includes and you draw another circle of what the Mosaic covenant includes, it's just the same circle. You drew the second one over the first one, they're the same. But if you draw a circle of the new covenant, it's going to have part of that covenant in it because some of the Jews are, are believers, but it's a different place. It's a different people. Uh, it's different, different, et cetera, different promises. Um, so Abraham and Moses becomes a difficult, a difficult place because we have this Old Testament data that seems to just put them together. We have this New Testament data that for some seems to split them apart in certain ways how do we understand that relationship? It's not easy. I mean, if it were easy, right. <laughs> um, if you say it's easy, I'm just going to laugh at you. You know, uh, it's not. It, and it takes, there's a lot of translation questions. I have uh-huh. serious issues with the ESV's translation of Romans 4.11 and cir- circumcision is oh, really? the seal of the righteousness of faith. And um, You heard it here, folks. That, that Yeah, I mean, that that's in my book in a footnote. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> if you start to, to quibble at, well, this first translation and this first translation, like it gets pretty complicated at that point. Yeah. And it's not, it, it requires patience and, and argumentation. It, it does not just yeah. assertion. Well, I, I mean, I think we got to start wrapping up this episode or at least, you know, before moving on to the patron part. Um, originally I was going to ask you to convert Blake because he's a baby sprinkler or as in a recent text thread between the three of us, uh, Justin referred to him as a baby moistening covenant confuser. <laughs> What we say yeah, in text, what, what, what we say in text messages, gentlemen, is not safe from the general public. I'm warning you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I think you've already done that. I think you've converted Blake. I think he's not going to admit it oh, right now oh, on yeah, the air. Sure. He's not. Gonna, but afterwards, he's going to, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, if he preaches maybe, the gospel to his children, my concerns are elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I think we've got maybe time for one more quick question. I don't know what even what question to ask, but uh, so there's this use of the term substance and administration for the Pato Baptists. And I've, I've heard some Baptists uh, speak about how it can be a conflation, the way they use substance that they'll use it different ways at different times. Um, You know, and they'll, they'll use Colossians two 17, uh, that Christ is the substance of the shadows when Paul is talking about the old covenant there to say that see Christ is the substance of those old covenants. Um, so it is all the same covenant. Um, I hope I'm doing them justice and how I'm describing that, but how would you uh, answer that? Or is that a help is, is the substance administration distinction even helpful? I know we kind of already touched on that, but I don't know what other question to ask, but we'll probably move on after this. <laughs> In in my in my opinion, I believe that the terminology is not helpful. Okay. I don't I believe that the terminology does not sufficiently communicate or clearly enough communicate what it's intended to to communicate. It says too much and it says too little. Um, it affirms the language of substance and administration affirms that Christ's saving grace, the substance of the covenant, is singular and continuous in all history. Yes, mm. that's that's mm-hmm. not in debate. But then it affirms that the post-fall pre-Christ covenants and the post-Christ covenant, that they're all the same covenant with merely different outward forms, different administrations. So it's like, wait, we affirm this one substance in all history, but we don't affirm that the other covenants are of the same substance. 
Um, and my biggest issue really with the, with the language is just that in paedo-baptist literature that I read, they just don't explain it. They just use it. They don't justify it. They don't argue for why this language should be used and why it's helpful and specifically what it means. So you get things like Meredith Klein and Klein's students, and they talk about, well, this is an administrative republication of the covenant of works. And I say, <laughs> you speak of the English, you know, like those words don't make sense. You can't just, administration becomes this cloak, this mantle that hides all sorts of serious internal tensions and sometimes inconsistencies. And so it's not necessarily what the distinction affirms that I have an issue with at all times. It's, there's too many things being affirmed and the language does not clearly delineate those things. And so I would really love it if Paedo-Baptists would say, okay, let's pick different vocabulary and affirm the same concepts. Because then I mm. think that we could more, they could more clearly interact with themselves, Kleinians, non-Kleinians, those kinds of things. And I think they could more clearly interact with Baptists on those questions. And the problems of this language are as old as the 17th century, where it just got, it gets no one anywhere. And if, oh. you know, if, you're, if you're talking with your friends or your spouse or your children, and it's just not getting through one way or the other, you got to pick different words. Mm. You got to find a different way to say the same thing. So I'm not saying paedo-baptist stop saying what you're saying. No, I mean they should they should assert what they believe the scriptures to teach and they should defend it and argue for it. But I contend that that language does not get the job done. It does not sufficiently represent their own diversity of views and it does not sufficiently represent their views clearly enough to engage with alternate with other traditions. Uh, because I would affirm the covenant of grace is one in substance. And I could even affirm that its grace was administered to all the Old Testament saints through the Old Covenant. And yet I don't affirm that the Old Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. You see, so like, are we talking about administering the substance or are we talking about the outward administration through which the inward substance, the substance is administered inwardly? Like it just, it doesn't navigate the debate sufficiently enough in my opinion. And it gets used to cover too many tensions and inconsistencies. Man. That's, that's my oh, spiel. Thank you. This has been fantastic. I feel like we've got, we got return of the King Samwise and not Lord of the Rings Samwise <laughs> tonight. And, and that's just uh, so great. I just thank remember you so I much, freaked Sam. out when you signed your email Samwise. I was like, this guy <laughs> yeah, you did. this is great. And I feel bad because I'm the one person in the room who's not the, you know, the fanboy. But I, as I said, I'm very much enjoying. Uh, you should feel bad. I, I do. And I'm very much enjoying the the super robust uh, engagement because, frankly, that's something that um, I don't see as much of from the broader 1689 community. Um, yeah. I see a lot of guys in the Westminster and, and the Dutch stream, which oh, we didn't because really touch right on now that. it's okay. hip to be Presbyterian. Oh, guys, <laughs> I, you know what? I know I know that we were, were trying to wrap this up to move to the patron, not take up too much Sam's time. Uh -oh. I know it's late on your end. But no, there's one other question. I don't know why I didn't ask this one because... For anyone who's new to this, I mean, if you were able to sit through this last stuff that Sam was just blowing your, our minds with, uh, more power to you. But going back to if someone's new to this or they're just learning about this, can you end on this note, Sam? Oh, yeah. What are the practical applications uh, or why is it important to study covenant theology in your opinion? Uh, when you buy a house, the details of that sale are very important to you. Mm-hmm. If God says, I will remember your sins no more, 
the details of that transaction are, should be very important to you. And God has covenanted salvation to those who receive it in Christ. So there's really nothing more personally practical to a person than knowing what has God covenanted with me? What, what has God covenanted with me? And if his covenant with you is, I will, I will remember your sins no more, your lawless deeds, I will be merciful to them. Then, then you know you have personal assurance. God has promised you. And you, you see those promises in, in baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're, they're stuffed in your face for God to say, listen, I love you. Your sins are forgiven. Eat my body and my blood. And so covenant theology is personal and practical because it's the details of God's covenant with us. With, oh, yeah. with us, not, not just some people in ancient history, with, with us. Covenant theology is practical because it, it helps us to preach the gospel. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Uh, salvation is covenanted. It's guaranteed. It's already completed. Adam had this work to do. Christ completes his work, wraps it up, puts a bow on it, says, take it. It's yours. Mm-hmm. Covenant theology is practical because it, it informs so much of our ecclesiology, our doctrine mm-hmm. of the church. We're the covenant kingdom of Christ. We're the heirs of the new creation. Uh, we, we are his people who gather together in his name and, and share in all of the benefits of his redemption that he won for us and covenanted to us. So whether it's church life, personal assurance, or the preaching of the gospel, even just those three things show that covenant theology is not just some abstract theoretical um, issue, but it's, it's the life of the believer and the life of the mm. church and the message of life to the unbeliever. Amen. And earlier in the episode, you were able to to tell the whole story of redemption of the whole Bible in like five minutes. And that, that was covenant theology. Right? That was yeah. distilled covenant mm. theology. Covenant theology and is so important. Theology. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It is. That's great. Like covenant theology is quite literally distilled theology. Oh, we need to put that fantastic. on a t-shirt, man. It's yeah. happening. Yeah. Oh, goodness so, gracious. Sam, thank you so much for this. Yeah, um, you should, you need to plug your stuff, man. Where can people find you and read your work? Um, if they want to know more. Yeah. I have an Amazon author page. Samuel Renahan. You can see my books in English and Spanish there. Um, I'm on Twitter at petty underscore France. I have a blog, Petty Is that France. You're petty. No, Are it's a, petty? there was a Baptist <laughs> church in London uh, in Petty France. It's like uh, Little Tokyo, Petty France. You know, petit, petty. Uh, it's a, a little <laughs> neighborhood in, in London. Yeah, Petit France. Um, petty underscore yeah. France on Twitter. PettyFrance.wordpress.com is my blog, though I'm not super active on it. Uh, yeah, you can come to Disneyland and visit me here. That's awesome, oh, man. <laughs> I, this is weird. This is like the least that Blake and I have talked on an episode ever. Uh, uh, I, I, I've known that it's fantastic. I'm, I love I it. That's why we had you on. Yeah, I had, this I had like pages and pages and pages. Oh, we'll get Sorry, to them in the I Patreon section. We'll too. If, you have a, if you have a little more time with us, you can, we, we can get to more of those pages for do sure. We, do we have more time? Oh, yes. Johnny say? Said yes. Oh, Johnny, Johnny said Johnny, yes. Johnny said yes. We have more time. Fantastic. And on that note, thank yes. you guys so much for listening. If you want to check out more distilling theology, if you want to carry around some good theology, even though I'm sorry, guys, this is from a uh, a pedo Baptist, uh, you can get our Herman Bobbing <laughs> quote mugs over at shopdistillingtheology.com. We have a trilogy of mugs currently. The one I'm sipping tea out of says, "God and God alone is man's highest good." Mm. Uh, so. Amen. Your coffee objectively tastes better. Uh, the substance of your your morning is better uh, when it's in administrated this through that mug. <laughs> uh, 
listen, guys, uh, uh, if you join us on Patreon, you'll get access to 80 different posts and more. 80? Bro! 80 exclusive posts. What? Uh, you'll get discounts in the store, so you can get uh, your mugs a little bit cheaper. Uh, you'll get extended conversations like the one we're about to have, mm-hmm. thanks to Johnny. Uh, you'll get early releases. Uh, the folks who are on Patreon are listening to this right now. They're not having to listen to it a week later. Um mm-hmm. You'll get all kinds of bonus content at $4.99 a month. If you join us at $14.99 a month, you will get, after your first three months, a exclusive Patreon-only uh, mug, uh, which is awesome. And, and then you'll get other bonus content, video content, and stuff that's uh, coming down the pipe. So uh, join us there. Uh, we'd love to have you. You can also check us out on Facebook uh, slash Distilling Theology. You can join our Facebook group, Distilling Theology. Yeah. Uh, we have 500 members of Absolute Fun. Uh, it's a blast. It's, it's probably it's the most the, chill, yeah, most chill yeah. reformed Facebook group I've ever been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and not it's because nice. we started it. It's just it's that good. It is yeah. that good. It's just the people um, are. Yeah, you know, the, uh, join the us on Instagram. Community is sweet. Yeah, <laughs> join <laughs> hey, us on man. Instagram. We have um, we're working our way to a thousand followers there, and we have some awesome, awesome, awesome posts there. Uh, if you want to know what to drink, you want to know what to read, go there. Yeah, Uh-oh. it's a great, great page of recommendations. Oh yeah. Uh, I think one of our most recent uh, posts was uh, the lovely uh, Baptist uh, Systematic Theology by Nehemiah Cox and John Owen. Which, which is we'll ask city. some questions about in a few <laughs> minutes. Uh, also, mm-hmm. guys, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to get more high-quality podcast content like this one, we're going to exegete that and give us some context this week so that we don't uh, have people speculating wildly what I mean by high-quality podcasts. Uh, <laughs> you can check out the Society of Reformed Podcasters. This is a, do- a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective. These include Include our friends, Assurance of Pardon, The Bobcast, Christ in Context, obviously yours truly, Fast God Stuff, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. You can subscribe and get all those podcasts at reformedpodcasts.com. Subscribe to that mega feed. All these shows will show up in your in your um, in your podcast app, and you will have an endless stream of quality content. Now, next week, uh, I'm very excited because it's kind of this week. I was kind of the the, the minority, uh, as it were. <laughs> so we had three very, uh, very well thought out and reasonable and wonderful 1689 brethren. But next week, we're going to have two Presbyterian brethren join us for a conversation on Westminster Covenant theology or a Presbyterian Covenant theology. We're going to be joined by uh, Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. Uh, you may know them from many other things, but I'm going to reference them from the Mortification of Spin podcasts. And Justin, I'm going to need your help because I don't speak French. What are we tasting with them next week? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I know okay, my weakness. Well, What's that? Yeah, I know my weakness. I can Justin speak Dutch, and I, not French. Justin and I couldn't pronounce, you know, Scottish words. Aberlauer abuna or yeah, something Justin, like that. Justin we got, we got corrected French. on that. Mm. Yeah, uh, we did. We got we got corrected. Thank you, Andrew Good luck Owen, on the French. For, uh, mm. for correcting us on that one. Uh, we're <laughs> going to be sipping a cognac. We're going to be sipping uh, Courvoisier VSOP. Mm. I don't know what that stands for, but I'm excited to sip it. Um, and it'll be actually my first cognac. Ooh. I have not had cognac before. It's going to be fun. Um, yeah, so join us uh, there uh, next week um, or whenever it actually airs. Well, we're going to be recording it uh, on September 16th, 16th, which is a Wednesday. We're going to be recording after 6 p.m. I believe right now the scheduled time is 6.30 p.m. So we're going to live stream that just like we did with this one. 
uh, for our patrons, and then it'll air the following week on the podcast. Um, but you can check this out. We have a live Q&A that'll be going on, so you can ask questions. We've had patrons flowing in some questions tonight that we're going to ask uh, of our guest Sam here in a minute, which are available exclusively on patreon.com slash distillingtheology. So, boys, it's been it's been a yeah, lot of fun. Let's, let's get to that, all right? Amen. So, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And they all said, Soli Deo, Deo Gloria. Gloria. <laughs> Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. We're really excited to announce a new giveaway which starts today and runs through Friday, September 25th. Please visit us at distillingtheology.com giveaway or check out our Facebook page to get the link and enter for your chance to win a Distilling Theology Glencairn glass and a copy of Dr. Sam Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom, provided for us by Founders Press. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode because we had so much fun recording with Sam and our discussion actually continued for over an hour after this main podcast wrapped up. So here's a sneak preview of the content from that two and a half hour extended edition of this episode available exclusively at patreon.com slash distilling theology. And so the, the Baptists, they're reading this and they're saying, we've been arguing this for decades. <laughs> <laughs> and they literally have they literally have so they don't quote owen because he says something that they are convinced by that he mm-hmm. he's not taught them something new they are quoting owen because they are seeing in his writings at least the principles and reasons that they hold to that lead to believers baptism and of course owen doesn't follow them to that conclusion but they say in their in those contemporaneous writings the doctor is free to resolve them if he can. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they say this is a complete internal inconsistency between Owen's theology and Owen's baptismal practice. And they see it as 100% supporting their covenant theology, not just in Moses, uh, which he, Owen clearly does, but also they believe Owen has set up the logic uh, to justify their view of the Abrahamic covenant as well. Mm. So you may think that they are misreading Owen, or you may think that it just doesn't matter because Owen doesn't take it that far, but you at least have to, as a matter of historical theology, acknowledge they thought that his writings justified their views. They thought that he set up the arguments that they had been making for decades up to that point. So Owen gets quoted a lot, because the Baptists see in his writings their own views and reasons mm-hmm. that validate their own views. And they're saying, look, here's someone everyone loves and mm. respects yeah. saying the things that, that we said on these key points. Like that, um, that's your boy. Look, that's your boy. He's, <laughs> he, he, said what we, he said what we're saying. Yeah, go, get, go get your boy, you know what I mean? <laughs> get your boy. Hey, we, we've all got our people, you know. Mine, mine might be, you know, Calvin and, and Bob Inc. And, you know, it's okay. It's fine. We all got our people. Yeah. So I mean, when uh, people get upset, listen, we can appreciate Calvin too. That's right. Yeah, you oh, can. Mm-hmm. Calvin's great. He mm-hmm. says that baptism is a profession of faith. So, mm-hmm. um, Owen, <laughs> when when Baptists quote Owen, so does the Westminster Confession. <laughs> they're not saying that he was a Baptist. Sure. Right. Like, right. does anyone actually think Baptists are saying that Owen was a Baptist? Does anyone actually think I, that? I've heard some, but again, this is on social media, not the best place to have <laughs> oh these comments. But yes, goodness. I've heard some say that. Yeah, the Mary, big takeaway I'm getting on this is get off social media 
and get in your yeah. local church and uh, go to a pub with brothers from another church uh, and, and engage there, like like our friends from Assurance of Pardon. 